Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Monday, April 4th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I am Mike Pesca, and I am resigning from membership in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I know this means that while I will still be eligible to be nominated and receive Academy Awards, I will not be eligible to be one of the 9,000 voters for such awards as Best Sound Effects and Best Sound Editing. My ability to be nominated may be impacted by my truth that I have not always been the man I know I was meant to be, nor have I ever acted in a film. I do know I betrayed the trust of the Academy, and therefore I want to put the focus back on those who deserve attention for their achievements and allow the Academy to get back to the incredible work it does to support creativity and artistry in film and to get the right name of the best picture winner in five of the last six years and to always leave someone really obvious out of the in memoriam part. I am overwhelmed by what God is calling on me to do and be in this world, which is a non-voting, non-member, though Oscar-eligible, social affiliate of the Academy. And this is why I say I want to be an ambassador, meaning I want immunity. This is a season for healing in this moment and a time for speaking my truth and hearing and seeing and being seen and felt seen and for feeling and falling down and getting up and brushing oneself off again and to ask that stranger to pay for half the dry cleaning because he wasn't looking where he was going when he bumped into me. I want to be a river. I want to be a whirlpool, a swirling Eddie. I am actually changing my name to Eddie. It'll actually be pronounced that way so that when you hear it, you think of the swirl. I want to be a vessel. I want to be a muscular, vascular, non-combustible, like Phil, avuncular, life-sized, homunculus of meaning. I want to be a chalice for non-malice, a goblet for a droplet of healing, a flagon for flagging rating. So I am standing up to say I am stepping down and stepping away to reflect as, say, a shiny Oscar reflects a blinding light of truth, which is, of course, the greatest light of all. On the show today, what do electric vehicles, Beto or Rourke and women's basketball have in common? They could all use a plug? No. 
The answer is trends, when trends get mistaken for realities. But first, Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan are Russian journalists living out of self-preservation in the UK. They are the editor and deputy editor of Argentura.ru. Few understand Putin and his machinations like they do. In our conversation, the pair painted a picture of the Russian propaganda war working within Russia. And even though VPNs are available and actual factual news is out there, few avail themselves of it. Andre's grandfather, he told me, uses a VPN to get the real news, but most, the vast majority in his cohort do not. We'll talk about propaganda, information warfare, how it could affect the future of this war with Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan up next. In the late 70s, a brotherhood of criminals lived by one unbreakable rule. Yeah, don't snitch. Those who did ended up in the ground. He had dirt under his fingernails like he had tried to dig his way out. And when their own kids turned on them... They would do anything and they didn't care who they had to kill. The Killing Month, August 1978, is the new podcast from WRAL. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. To understand Russia and its motives is to understand its leader, Vladimir Putin, and how much he wages war as a means of information. Understanding this, as well as anyone in the world probably, are Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan. Uh, Soldatov is a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for European Policy Analysis, an investigative journalist and editor of Agentora.ru, which is a watchdog of Russians' secret service activities. The co-founder and deputy editor of Argentora is Irina Borogan, who is also a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for European Policy Analysis, where they have indeed been analyzing Putin's information tactics. Andre, Irina, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us here. Thank you. Was Vladimir Putin a good KGB agent? Well, of course, uh, but not just uh, some KGB agent. He was an intelligence officer. And he was good at his job, is my question. He was capable. It is not an easy question because to know how good is this intelligence officer or that intelligence officer, you have to know what he has done. Uh, but we, we don't know for sure what he had done uh, in Germany, in Dresden, because usually how we know uh, anything about intelligence officer and his or her job. When an officer failed, we know what he done. But if it have never happened, how do we know? There is no way. But according to, I mean, uh, analyzing his career, you can say that he was a real intelligence officer. I mean, uh, he was not like an officer who just was involved very actively into gathering intelligence information. Wait, abroad. I just want to be clear. You can or can't say that he was a real officer. 
No, we can't. Yes, because what we know of him, and this might be a little side path from where I want to go, but it's interesting that you say that. I think we always, uh, we in the West who know of his career, ascribe to that period the idea that he must have been very good because he seems to have done things like consolidated power and understand the lay of the land after the Soviet Union fell. But that's not necessarily the case. And I have heard it theorized that, you know, maybe Vladimir Putin just had some skills in certain areas, but was actually, didn't have the perfect, uh, all-powerful grasp of intelligence that he seems to present. Absolutely. Uh, and inside of the, of the KGB, he was seen as a very provincial guy because he was not stationed in the West. And uh, for many decades, the best position for a KGB intelligence officer was, of course, New York, then Washington, uh, London, well, probably... Sometimes uh, Middle East. Middle East, yeah, the Middle East, of course. But obviously not Dresden. Dresden was... Uh, is Germany, which means that, well, to be stationed there, it's just a bit better than to be stationed inside of the Soviet Union. And his career after he left Germany also was not extremely impressive. He was attached to a university in St. Petersburg. Again, it's not Moscow. It's quite provincial in terms of uh, intelligence gathering. Well, let's talk about the uh, series of articles you recently wrote about the new Iron Curtain and his attempt to quash the internet and to quash discourse. This actually stems out of what you were just talking about. He uh, fears the West and he blames the West and their internet sites for fomenting, uh, for fomenting not if not rebellion, then at least protests um, around 2011 and 2012. Am I getting the time frame right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was a moment when... Uh, Vladimir Putin decided to get back to power. Before that, he, he had this, uh, break when he was a prime minister and he had his, uh, friend and associate playing the role of the president. Uh, but lots of people by 2011, they started believing that maybe they can get rid of Putin and it, and it would be the end of his rule and they invested in this, uh, in this president who was not a real president. Uh, so when finally, uh, Medvedev, Medvedev, yes. Uh, yeah. finally when Putin broke this news that he's gonna run, uh, for, for the presidency again, lots of people got really, really angry. And that is why we got so many protests, protesters on the streets. And he blamed the West for the internet to allow and organize these protests. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, before the protest, uh, he blamed just the West. But after the process, he started blaming the West and the Internet. What happened then? Putin uh, did not believe in the Internet before 2011, 2012. He was sure that the Internet is a kind of, uh, is a kind of toy for intelligentsia and only for intellectuals. But uh, it was a time for social net, social media. Everybody, I mean, uh, every person younger than forty has uh, had uh, had an account in any social uh, and once at least one social media. But Putin did not know that, uh, so he put all his efforts into into control over TV channels and over traditional media. And when he found out that people came to the street and they started protesting against him personally. And against the, uh, and against, um, an honest election. He found out that all the protest was organized on Facebook. 
They were organized on Vkontakte, which is Russian analog on Facebook. And it's all about the internet. And it was a revelation for him. And he launched a company, an offensive against the internet. And how did that go? Was it successful? No, it was not. Uh, his first idea was just to introduce uh, a collection of blacklists. So the idea was really basic and primitive. Uh, to compile a list of prohibited websites, domain names, URLs, and uh, to force every internet service provider in the country to block them and to check every day, actually, uh, the website of the Russian Internet Censorship Agency and to make amendments and to block more and more and more sites. And of course, it was not a big success. It was nothing comparable with China. People still used their social media because social media were not blocked. Uh, and uh, even if, say, you have some independent media uh, getting blocked, they still have their accounts on social media and they just posted their stories there. Facebook was still available. Twitter was still available. Uh, YouTube was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So the system was really sloppy. And then after the 2014 Ukraine incursion invasion, which was a success. Uh, Crimea was a success uh, in the eyes of Putin and those who supported him. They uh, captured much of the Donbas region. Soldiers would post and brag about this, and that was against the law, but there was an inability to crack down on them. And I think we're seeing something like that going on now, except soldiers are posting and using uh, the means of communication to complain about how poorly the war is going. So he should have known about this. He just, what, couldn't do anything to address it? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really big challenge for him. And yes, we now we see all these videos, some of them made by Russian soldiers, uh, some of them made by uh, soldiers uh, uh, drafted in Donbass who are not really happy to be part of this big war. And they're complaining on YouTube and they're posting these things on Telegram, Contacti again, uh, some other short social media. And that is why we know that lots of people inside uh, they are not really happy with the war. Did he think that he had successfully suppressed the internet before he rolled into Ukraine this time? In 2019, the situations with uh, the internet censorship has changed because the Russia adopted the new, much more advanced system of censoring and filtering the internet. So now it's not like it used to be in 2012, 2014, and after that. And this system of filtering is much more effective. It is able to uh, to mitigate uh, the whole traffic li- traffic like YouTube. It could uh, it could block Facebook and particular posts on Facebook. So it's much more effective. And right now, Facebook is uh, uh, Facebook is blocked in Russia. And uh, to use to get access to Facebook, you have to use VPN. It's possible, and people do this. But uh, it's I mean uh, it's I can't explain how this new system is much more effective than the previous system. Right now, uh, TV's, TV channels' propaganda is so huge and so powerful that a lot of people, maybe most of Russians, choose not to use social media as an alternative source of information. And they choose, don't use uh, 
independent media as an alternative source of information. So it's kind of, in terms of propaganda, in kind, it's kind of a victory for Putin. But in terms of victory, in yeah. terms of uh, access to the internet, it's it is not a victory because users still have access to the to any 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 websites on the internet. But by by many reasons, not all of them want to do this. Do most people get their news from TV to an extent that is different from in America and the United States, where so much news consumption has shifted to online? Uh, it seems that since the war started, more and more people use state propaganda from TV channels and also from YouTube. They all have, until until recently, they all had uh, their accounts on YouTube. So, But it's more, uh, the point is that more and more people consume TV channels information, which is 100% pro-war propaganda. When a protest or some employee of the station makes a brief statement as a couple have and then gotten arrested, the war is a lie, does that have any effect or are they just written off as, you know, a lunatic? Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't affect uh, what people think. Uh, well, it was... It was a big shift for, for us because we thought, okay, so pe- even people inside of the system, they feel that something is, is going really, really wrong. But for many people, uh, it's, uh, it was not a big case. And also, um, some people, st- well, of course, they consume some news uh, online. And uh, the thing which is quite different from what you have in the United States, we have our own Google, which called Yandex which is a big, big, big uh, company, and it's much more popular than Google in our country. The thing about front page of Yandex, which is different from Google, is that you have Yandex News, five top news on the front page. And uh, unfortunately, these news are under strict control of the government. So many people, they go to to the uh, to Yandex.ru they see these five news and they see that they're all about like how, how the war is great and all, the Kremlin is fine. It's like, it's like in America when Yahoo was the front page of the internet. If Yahoo was controlled by a propagandist, the real information wouldn't be getting out. Um, we, we've heard and it was predicted that for all the efforts to combat the internet and information, the crack was going to be the number of dead bodies coming back, and it's been reported low estimate of 7,000, high estimate of 15,000, credible estimate of 15,000 Russian fighters killed. What do you think of that? Is that a huge vulnerability, and might that, just the fact of all these bodies coming back to towns and provinces, overwhelm the propaganda efforts of the state? So far, it seems that's not a big trouble for for public opinion, because... um, all the soldiers they were they live they lived in Russian provinces in very small in very small towns and that's why they're not uh, their relatives they're not organized like a one force it means like one guy was killed from one village and another guy from one small city uh, there is I uh, um, as far as I know I've seen some some profiles of Russian soldiers and officers who were killed in Ukraine, uh, those uh, which was published by Russian. And I noticed that there is no people from Moscow, from St. Petersburg, from uh, from huge cities, because in the big cities, uh, in big cities, people are organized very easily via social media. I don't know. 
a lot of a, a, there are a lot of uh, a lot of ways how you can organize people in 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 the big cities, but not in small cities and in the, in the villages where people feeling like they're isolated from outside world. That's why this information about killed uh, about killed soldiers in Ukraine. have not affected public opinion hugely right now. Are you saying that there are plenty of casualties from Moscow and St. Petersburg, it's just that the state won't recognize them? No, the the idea is that uh, Putin learned some lessons from uh, his campaign during the Second Chechen War, and he understood that it's better not to use soldiers uh, who are from the big cities in his wars. Well, the country is really huge, so you can use your soldiers, well, the soldiers who actually, uh, who are from small villages, as Irina explained, and uh, still it's, I mean, it's a big numbers and you can use them and nobody would notice except their immediate relatives. As the war has progressed, what has happened to street protests? It's non-existent now because the repressions are so huge, you can... Uh, you can face prison time, even if you have a uh, standalone protest. We have several cases of people who lived in Moscow and they just hung uh, a Ukrainian flag in, inside their apartments. And uh, they got visits from police and they got legal problems. So it's, it is really, really, really difficult. 15,000 people who went to street to protest against the war were arrested or detained for a while. So it's, 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 it's very painful punishment to be, to be in prison for such a days. Andrei Soldatov and Irina Boragon are both non-resident senior fellows with the Center for European Policy Analysis. They are the editors and deputy editors of agentura.ru and their 2015 book The Red Web The Kremlin's War on the Internet is an indispensable guide to these matters. Thanks for coming on the gist. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. Here's a trend I've noticed. The direction of the trend is all that gets noticed. The trend all and be all. 
So you might hear about a notable quarter for electric vehicles. Despite supply chain issues, Tesla hit a new sales record by delivering 310,000 vehicles in just the first quarter. According to a statement released Saturday, the electric vehicle maker showed a 68% increase in manufacturing compared to the same time last year. And there were no claims about the total number of cars on the road that are electric, but just to hear that one number, you can kind of close your eyes and recall a stat you've probably heard before that by, I don't know, 2030, 2050, the estimates are that half or more than half of the cars on the road will be electric, or maybe the stat is conjured in your mind. You've heard it. You know you've heard it. That California or General Motors pledges an entirely electric fleet or mostly electric fleet by, again, pick a year. The year might change. The entity might change. But the trend doesn't change. The trend says what the news is saying, what almost all of us absorb is that we're going to be electric sooner than we may know. And this trend, which means that which will be, begins to substitute in our imagination for that which is. And you probably don't have an electric car. And even if you do, you're out on the road today, you looked around you, you know most of the other cars aren't electric. But you know where the trend is, and you begin to think of the future as here and here as electric. So let's talk numbers. What if they told you the numbers of cars on the road right now that aren't electric? All right, I'll give you this to start off. How many cars are on American roads? 289.5 million vehicles on American roads. And of those 289, 9.5 million vehicles, 287 need gas to move. So whenever you hear people confidently or maybe even angrily say, why are we still drilling? Or why aren't we installing charging stations on every corner instead of gas stations? They aren't reflecting the reality because the reality is 97.5% of the cars are internal combustion engine dependable. Even if hybrid, they need the gas to go. This isn't as exciting as what will be, but that's where we are right now. I see this trend of focusing or over-focusing on trends a lot in electoral politics, where the emerging trend of a minority-majority country has been conflated with the current state of the electorate. This was very pronounced in the 2018 Texas Senate election, where, let's take a PBS report, it could stand in for many reports that didn't get anything wrong, but it reported how the state's demographics were changing in a way that threatened the Texas Republican hold on power. Please welcome Congressman Beto O'Rourke. He is gaining national attention and appealing to diverse groups in a state with a growing population of non-white voters. Is this the race that could turn a red state blue? Nothing wrong with those facts, qua facts. The statement of fact was accompanied by a graphic showing the share of the white population of Texas shrinking and the share of black and Latino population growing. White goes down from 54% in 2010 to 42% in 2017, the year before that report aired. Take this report from AJ Plus, once again emphasizing Texas's share of the Latino population. Democrats' hopeful outlook is all because of the changing of Texas demographics. It's the uh, Latino populations around the state and that this is a population that will rise, awaken, and seize its political power. But Ted Cruz beat Beto O'Rourke by 215,000 votes. 
It was kind of close. 2.3% O'Rourke lost to Cruz by. O'Rourke came closer than any Democrat had in over 20 years in winning any statewide election. Of course, O'Rourke also outraised Cruz enormously, 80 million to 46 million, and faced in Cruz an enormously unpopular incumbent. There were a lot of reasons for Cruz's victory. One odd fact was that while O'Rourke was said to benefit from this rise in Latino voters, Ted Cruz was the Latino in the race, Beto O'Rourke was not. But I think a big reason why many people were surprised or more disappointed than they should have been by the result was that maybe people had been paying attention to left or slightly left-leaning election prognosticators who said that what is to come is now. They bet the come. They took the trend as a reality when the trend is the directional increase, but the numbers are the reality. So that shrinking to 42% of Texans who are white and that growing, arising, awakening, seizing portion of the population that identifies as Latino, the exit poll showed that 56% of Texans who cast their vote in that election were white, 12% black, 36% Latino. And that wasn't a surprise. And that wasn't suppression. And that wasn't blacks and Latinos not voting in equal proportions as white. I mean, it happened for a few reasons. One is that the statistics are a little bit affected by the fact that Latino is an ethnicity, not a race. So many Latinos do identify as white. Take Ted Cruz, for example. Another factor is that statements about the rise in Latinos in the population, while true, usually don't state that Latinos are less eligible to vote either because of citizenship status or age. But a big, big reason why people might have been surprised or why you might be surprised to think that, wait, why did 56% of the voters, why are they white when only 42% of the state is white? Is that the trend, the direction of the change about to occur came to stand in for the facts of what were already here? In politics, there is a debate about demographic change. And sometimes it gets called wish casting to assume that demographic change that will occur has occurred. And that will do all the work of winning elections. I see this as a function mostly of psychology. People are attracted to new shiny things. And an emergent majority-minority makeup is different from what we've always known. Some people might be attracted to that, hopefully. Some people might be distressed by that. But it's a lot easier for people to focus on the fact that we will someday be a majority-minority country than the fact that we're not that close from having it happen. Not this election, not next election, not the next few elections. We're going to have enough elections that whites dominate, that unless Democrats do something different other than be really, really, really appealing to non-whites, Democrats are going to lose. We're about as close to that as the letters EV, just meaning car. You know, where most cars are EVs. We won't call them EVs. We might call the old cars ICEs. I don't know. Tonight... The NCAA championship will occur. Actually, they already occurred. The NCAA women's championship was won by South Carolina last night. Tonight could be won by North Carolina or Kansas on the men's side. And women's basketball is rising in popularity. That seems true. I've looked at the facts. I've looked at the trend lines. It's also true that the NCAA makes so much less money from the women's tournament than the men's. And it seems like they're under-monetizing the tournament. I read a big report about that. But that said, I think this is an instance where news about growth and trends and the legitimate Title IX demands for equal treatment between men and women have confused some people about the absolute numbers. 
A couple of weeks ago, ESPN put out a press release touting how well their broadcasts of the women's games were going. One second round game did really well. UConn versus University of Central Florida garnered 1.13 million viewers. And ESPN said the second round was up, up 25%, and they were averaging 474,000 viewers a game. On the men's side, the most watched second round game, Duke versus Michigan State, was watched by 11 million viewers. And men's first and second round games on Turner Sports and CBS were averaging 9.12 million viewers. I couldn't find just a second round stat. But, you know, 20 times as many people were watching games from the equivalent round. If you just view the best game, nine times as many people. Tonight in the finals, there won't be 10 times as many viewers as there were in the women's finals. But it'll be, you know, some large multiple. If you're focusing on the trends in popularity in the women's game, the women's game is doing pretty nicely. If you deal with absolute numbers, with the men's game as a baseline, well, let's be positive and say the women's game has much room for growth. All of the cases I've cited from basketball to politics to EVs, they're all different and conceptions or misconceptions, they're not entirely twisted around the slope of the trend. There are many reasons why many people are under impressions that I think might lead them to not realize that 97.5% of cars on the road need the old gasoline. But in general, I do think trend lines are fine, but absolutes best compute. And just like we state margin of error with polling or how we put the rise in crime in the context of historical highs in the 90s, that's instructive. I say so too should we in the media strive to clarify what the current bottom line numbers are, do that along with the forecasts of what's to come. Or else by 2035, experts say that the majority of new trend stories will be almost all half-truths. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Hunter is Boston bureau chief of Peachfish Productions. The GIST is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.